Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Overall, I'm not a very handy guy, and that's not something that guys like to admit, but I'm not. I'm not a handy guy. I don't handle a lot of uh, maintenance and repair projects around our house, uh, and most of the time... When I'm called upon to do a job, it is met with some reservations because, obviously, there are some repairs that are beyond my ability to tackle. Uh, for instance, I know that when the check, check engine light goes on on the car, I know that there is a problem. That's as about as far as it goes for me. But since I neither have the expertise or the required equipment to diagnose and fix the problem, I take my car to someone who does. I tell you that to tell you this. I think that many of us, when it comes to our salvation, we go through a very similar process uh, when we attack maybe problems around the house. We begin by thinking that it is something that we can figure out on our own and possibly accomplish on our own. And while we might even feel like we're making some headway for a while, we eventually come to the place where we realize that it's something that we probably shouldn't have done by ourselves in the first place. What we should have done has turned our thoughts and our minds to God. One significant aspect of the good news of Christmas is that God has done everything required to provide for our salvation. Amen? Amen? Last week, we began this short series on the good news of Christmas by discovering that the good news of Christmas is because we do not have to fear. We do not have to fear. Christmas is proof of God's sovereignty and His grace. And when we humbly seek God and join Him where He is already at work, he makes it possible for us to live a life that is free from fear. Next week, we celebrate the good news of Christmas culminated into that night that we celebrate. And these three aspects of the good news of Christmas are inextricably linked because last week we encouraged you to go back and read the story. To go back and to have a better understanding for your own personal relationship to Christ. I think a lot of lay people know the story of Christmas. But I don't think they understand what the story of Christmas really means to them. Even if they don't know Christ. The story of Christmas has everything to do with their life. 
and the reason why we need a Savior. Why do we need a Savior? Why do we need one? We know that God is holy. We know that God is holy. When we're, whenever we are given a glimpse into the throne room of God, as in Isaiah chapter 6 or Revelation chapter 1, it is always God's holiness that is on display. I love the way the author A.W. Tozer defines God's holiness in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. He says this, We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered, but rather holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. When we understand God's holiness like that, the next point becomes pretty obvious. We know that God is holy, but we also know that we are not. We are not holy. I think that most of us here would consider ourselves to be pretty good people. But I'm also pretty sure that all of us would readily admit that we're not perfect. Even if we're never out murdering someone, robbing banks, cheating on our spouses, we almost always certainly been angry with a brother, taken something that doesn't belong to us, lusted after someone or something, or failed to do good when he had the ability to do that. And God defines all those things as sin. That's why Paul wrote to the churches in Rome, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that little word, all, makes it clear that every one of us is in the same boat. We're all sinners. And when we consider that fact in concert with the fact that God is holy... We understand why not only is God holy, not only are we not, but we also know that our sin separates us from God. And most of us are probably familiar with Paul's summary of the consequences of our sin. 623 in Romans, for the wages of sin is death. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul gives us a further explanation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, you can reference that. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So in the Bible, death is always defined as a separation. Not a state of non-existence. Understand that. It is a separation, not of non-existence. 
Physical death is the separation of the body from the soul and spirit. And the book of Ecclesiastes, it's just one place in the Bible that teaches this idea. Ecclesiastes 12.7, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. The kind of spiritual death that Paul is describing in these passages is also a separation. Since God is holy and I am not, and I am not capable of having a relationship with him based on my own merit, God's holiness and my sin are like oil and water. They don't mix. The prophet Isaiah describes that separation. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you. So that he does not hear. What does that tell you and I? We have a problem. We have a problem. We have a sin problem. That means we are separated from God. And as much as I would like to think I can, there is absolutely nothing I can do on my own to fix my sin problem that leads to being separated from God. But in spite of that, in spite of that, most people do make a futile attempt to handle their sin in many different ways, but equally ineffective ways. So let's look at two of those that we probably have the most in common. First of all, we ignore it. We like to just ignore the sin that's present in our lives. Maybe if we don't pay attention to it, it'll go away. Let me go back to the illustration of that check engine light. We all know that the light indicates that there is a problem. But it is certainly possible to just ignore that light and pretend there really isn't a problem at all. How many of you have done that? Guilty. Okay. I've even heard of people using a piece of tape to cover up that light on the dashboard. Yes, or a business card. Probably to the place you need to take it to, right? Or finding the wire to the light and cutting it so that it no longer comes on. My luck, I'd cut the wrong one. But just ignoring or disabling that light won't make the underlying problem go away, will it? Unfortunately, a lot of people do the same with their sin in their life. They do that in several different ways. One way is to just hope that God doesn't really exist and that therefore their sin really doesn't have any consequences. And while I could give you all kinds of evidence this morning that God really does exist, this picture that someone posted on Facebook recently does a pretty good job of summing up why it is such a dangerous approach. And there's many different examples, but um, we have ways we like to illustrate sin in order to downplay what it really is so that we could ignore it and not give it the proper attention that it needs. And knowing that you and I are not able to fix that problem. 
Only God can fix that problem. But I would rather live my life as if there is a God and die to find out there isn't than to live my life as if there isn't and find out there is. Is that really dumbing down Christianity? You think so? That you would rather not believe in God and then find out there is. What kind of shock would those individuals have? I can't even imagine. Yeah. Another way to ignore our sin is to just pretend it doesn't exist or to try to cover it up in some way. But that is no more effective than the other. Or we can call sin something that it's not. Oh, it's, it was just a mistake, a lapse in judgment, an error. But doing that doesn't change the fact that sin is still sin in God's eyes. There are a number of other ways we can ignore our sin, but I think you guys kind of get the idea. The other way we kind of dismiss sin in our life is maybe we hope God grades on a curve, right? Maybe if we do enough good, it'll outweigh the bad. And I think this is probably the most common approach to sin in our culture today. And I certainly know that this is the way I thought of my sin for many years. And again, this can take many forms, but all of them basically view God as keeping score. And that as long as good things in my life outweigh the bad, that I'll get a passing grade from God. But if we really consider that idea for long, we soon find out that it really doesn't make sense. It would be like thinking that when that check engine light goes on in the car, that it probably means there's only one defective part in the engine, and there are hundreds of other parts that are working just fine. So you know what? I don't really need to do anything. One outweighing the, the many other things that make a car work. So we dismiss it. But neither of these ways of attempting to deal with our sin nor any other approach we take on our own can possibly fix our sin problem. So far, this is far from good news. Sermon title is The Good News of Christmas. So far, I've given you bad news. Leave it to pastors to fool you, right? The good news of Christmas is that there is a Savior. One who is capable of doing what I cannot do and taking care of my sin problem and overcoming my separation from God. That is the message that God sent to Joseph and Mary and the angels. But let's take a brief look at those messages and then see what principles that we can draw from them so that the good news of Christmas can be our good news. We know with Joseph, and we talked about this last week. He says in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And I think 
most of us understand that in biblical times, names had a lot more significance than they generally do today. A person name often indicated something important about his or her relationship to God or a task that God had given to that person. And that certainly is true with Jesus' name. You'll notice here that the angel gave specific instructions to name the child Jesus. And then we'll see Gabriel gave the same command to Mary in just a moment. So let's take a minute to understand why that name, Jesus, is so significant. Jesus in the English language, or Jesus in Greek, Yeshua in Hebrew, which was shortened from Yahushua, which was, anyone know? Joshua. Yeho, prefix of Yahweh, plus Yasha, to save or to deliver. Yahweh delivers. The angel confirms the meaning of the name when he says that Jesus will save his people from their sins. Now, that's good news, isn't it? Jesus is going to do what man cannot do himself. He is going to save or deliver his people from their sins and thus fulfill his name. And you'll also notice that the angel proclaims that Jesus will save his people from their sins. And now we've talked a lot about that phrase and what his people means. And since we know that Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, the first thought is that he is describing the Jewish people with that phrase. But the salvation that Jesus offers is certainly not limited to just the Jews. Nor is it true that all the Jews are going to place their faith in Jesus and thus be saved from their sins. It is also obvious that his people cannot be describing all of mankind. Although Jesus is indeed, as the people of Sychar called him, the savior of the world, the scriptures are clear that not everyone who has ever lived is saved by Jesus, since those who refuse to place their faith in him do not receive the salvation that he offers to all. And although we obviously don't have time today to get into a detailed discussion of the idea of election and predestination, I think we would be safe to conclude that his people refers to those who Jesus described with these words in John chapter 6, verse 44. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. These words of Jesus are certainly consistent with what we've seen this morning. Our sin separates us from God and makes us all spiritually dead. And a dead person can do nothing to bring himself back to life. I know none of us have ever seen 
a dead person performs CPR on himself, I hope. But that's not possible. In the same way, one who is spiritually dead is incapable of doing anything to bring himself back to life spiritually. So the only way that we can become alive spiritually is for God to draw us to Jesus and give us the ability to repent and put our faith in Jesus. So his people here must refer to those whom God the Father has drawn to his Son and who have responded to that drawing by placing their faith in Jesus alone as their means for salvation. And that same good news is repeated in a slightly different way when Gabriel appears to Mary. Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So although Gabriel focuses here on Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promise to David of a king from his line who would reign forever, we see that he repeats the command to the name, the child that is to be born Jesus. And there is little doubt Mary would have understood the meaning and significance of that name. And that is confirmed just a few verses later when Luke records the song that Mary sang in response to God's revelation that she was going to bear the Son of God. And in that song, Mary not only recognizes Jesus as the Savior, but also as her Savior, as her Savior. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. My Savior. Even though God has chosen Mary to be the mother of his son, she was just like all of us. And that she was a sinner who indeed needed a Savior. And if she needed a Savior, then so do we. So do we. And finally, we look at the proclamation of the angel to the shepherds. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And as we saw last week, the birth of a Savior was indeed good news of great joy. And while that is potentially good news for all the people, not everyone chooses to appropriate that good news into their lives. You'll notice here that the angel refers to Jesus with three terms that are all so interrelated that they can't be separated. 
The baby who has been born in Bethlehem is Savior, Christ, and Lord. And in order for anyone to be saved from his or her sins and thus make Christmas good news, he or she must embrace all three of those aspects of who Jesus is. And we've spent a lot of time already talking about Jesus as Savior. By leaving the glory of heaven and being born as a human baby, and then living a sinless life and giving up his life on the cross, and then being raised from the dead. And by doing so, Jesus provided the only way for us to be saved from our sin. But frankly, a lot of people don't have a problem with viewing Jesus like that. I think most people recognize deep inside that they are sinners, and if Jesus can save them from the consequences of that sin, then that's okay with them. But the second aspect of who Jesus is is that he is Christ. He is Christ. I think we miss the significance of that title because we tend to use the word Christ like it was Jesus' last name. But it is actually a title, not a name. In Greek, it means anointed one. And it is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word we transliterate as Messiah. And this corresponds closely with Mary's understanding of Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promise to David that a king in his line would one day reign forever. But as the anointed one, Jesus is the only way that God has chosen to make it possible for you and I to be saved from our sin. And this is where some people begin to have a problem with Jesus. They don't mind viewing him as Savior, but if he is the only way for their relationship with God to be restored, a lot of people reject that idea. In a culture where we have a variety of choices in almost every area of our life, many people view the idea that Jesus is the only way to God as too restrictive. Doesn't fit into my plans. How can it be the only way to God? But if we're going to be saved from our sins, Jesus must be Lord. And I'm convinced this is where people end up missing out on the good news of Christmas. They don't mind Jesus being Savior, and they may even be willing to accept that as the Christ is the only way to God. But they balk at giving up control of their life to Jesus and living life on his terms rather than our own. Notice that the angel didn't say that Jesus can be Savior or Christ or Lord, or that we get to pick which of those aspects of his character we want and just ignore the others. If Christmas is going to be good news because Jesus is Savior, he must also be Christ and Lord at the same time. And when we yield our lives to Jesus like that, 
then he has promised to save us from our sins. But what exactly does that look like? What does it mean to be saved from our sin? We've talked before about the three different aspects of salvation. We've talked about past, present, and future. So it's not surprising that being saved from our sin also has three aspects. First of all, we have been saved from the penalty of our sins. And earlier we read the first part of Romans, but it did, we need to add the last part of that verse and look at the entire verse now. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the penalty for my sin is death or what we call separation from God. But when I make Jesus my Savior, my Christ, and my Lord, then that penalty is removed and I receive eternal life. And from that point forward, you and I are no longer separated from God because of what Jesus has done for us. Amen. We're being saved from the power of sin. Amen. That's why we need a Savior. That's what is the good news of Christmas. He is saving us from the power of sin. And I think this is the aspect of salvation that is least understood and applied in our lives. Paul summarized that idea in Romans chapter 6, particularly in two verses, verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So before placing our faith in Jesus, we were slaves to sin. We couldn't keep from sinning no matter how hard we tried. I know that before I committed my life to Jesus, I could avoid some of the sins that I struggled with for a short time on my own, or maybe on my own willpower. But that never lasted very long. Even after making Jesus my Savior, Christ, and Lord, I still sin. We still sin. But what I find now, and what is the good news of Christmas, I find now that I am no longer enslaved to that sin. And when I die to self, and allow Jesus to be in control of my life, I find that he can set me free from those sins that once controlled my life. I will be saved from the presence of sin. And one day all who have chosen to make Jesus Savior, Christ, and Lord will receive a new resurrection body and life forever physically in the presence of Jesus. And when that occurs, we will live in a state in which we are completely free, completely free from the presence of sin. We are God's children now. 
And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And at the return of Jesus, we are going to be transformed along with the rest of all who belong to him. And at least one of the ways that we will be like Jesus is that we will no longer sin. And we'll be living alongside others who have also experienced that same transformation. So that means that we will live in a place where we will be completely free from the presence of sin. Who wants to sign up right now? I'm ready. As much as we might like to think that we're capable of obtaining salvation on our own, at some point in our lives, we'll all come to that same point I did with that check engine light and realize that there are some things I am not equipped to do and that my salvation is one of those things. I cannot do it on my own. Christmas is good news because it means I don't have to do it on my own. Because there is a Savior. One who is also Christ and is also Lord. And if we will just accept him into our life on those terms, he will do what we possibly could not do and save us from the penalty, power, and presence of sin. Christ means hope to the person out of work, to the struggling single mother, to the dying believer. Even if we're just slogging our way through the disappointments of life, if you have Jesus, you have hope. And he is not a false hope, a childish fairy tale that we wish we all have a happy ending. When Christ rose from the dead, that ended the argument, period. Our hope in him is solid and it is real. Hope has to do with trust and confidence. It is the resting of the human heart on God with full trust that he will care for us and our salvation and will give us the happiness he has promised. It is an eager expectation or anticipation of what is sure to come in active faith-infused, waiting for God to fulfill that which he started by the power of the Holy Spirit. Period. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. God wants us to live with hope. An assurance that all his promises will come true for us and that our future is firmly and safely secure in his hands forever. Christmas is a renewal of hope. It reconfirms it for us if our vision has grown dim. It was settled long ago so we don't have to doubt anymore. Jesus is the fulfillment of our hope and our deepest longings are coming true. 
For millions of people, the Christmas season means nothing more than parties, gifts, decorations, and time off of work. For Christians, however, this time of year is a happy reminder of the hope we have because of Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you this Christmas to get alone with God. Be alone with God and read the Christmas story from his holy word and try to go back in your thoughts to the time when our Savior was born. Recapture the joy that was in the hearts of all who had faith to believe that this baby was the Messiah of Israel, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of all sinners who would believe in him and seek his forgiveness. Because without knowing him, without knowing the Christ of Christmas, you will never know what real joy and happiness this time of year can actually bring. Christmas is a day for us to remember God's merciful love. Through Jesus, we come to know who God really is. He is love. God's love is extended to everyone, including the marginalized, and especially the poor and the homeless. This Christmas, let us be mindful of those who are in need of our welcome. A family member, a friend, a co-worker, a fellow church member. Let us make room in our hearts for forgiveness and love and reach out to those who are asking for them. That's the meaning of Christmas. Amen? Amen. Dave, come. Hey, Tim, would you put up We Have a Savior? We sang it earlier. Thank you. I want us to do a verse and a chorus of We Have a Savior. Yeah, that sound good. We have a Savior.
indeed, Lord, we have a Savior. It is through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we are saved. We are saved from the power of sin and the control that it has over our lives. If we simply submit ourselves to you, you have promised to take that away. And Lord, you do. And we thank you for all that you are and who you are. You are the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And you chose us to be in your kingdom. Lord, we thank you every day for that. We don't need a special holiday. We don't need a grand invitation to partake in that. Lord, you give us hope. And we cling to it. Especially in these times, Lord. When it's very easy to give up on hope. But your son is the reminder that we hold fast to that hope. And to the understanding that you are sovereign. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Bless us now as we leave here this morning. Bless the food that we will partake in and those hands who have prepared it. Lord, as we dive into this final week of the Christmas season, I pray that we focus our minds and our thoughts upon the real reason why we celebrate. Thank you, Lord. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. Join us in the fellowship hall for Christmas dinner. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.